But we now turn to the portion of our live stream where we hear from God's word. As we begin this morning, I want to ask you a question. Do you want to be happy? Do you want to be happy? Do you want to have real joy? I think that many Christians and non-Christians are confused about happiness and particularly confused about God and happiness and joy. I remember being on a plane and having a young man find out that I was a Christian and not only a Christian, but a pastor. And he told me he was very confused by Christians because from his perspective, Everything he'd heard about the Christian God was that the Christian God wanted to take away everything that seemed to make him happy. That is, all of the things that he delighted in in this world seemed to be the things that Christians were saying he shouldn't do. You know, even Christians can be confused about this, too. I remember as a young Christian in college thinking that I both wanted to be happy, but that I also wanted to obey God and to glorify God. And I felt as a Christian that I was at cross purposes with God. I wanted to be happy. I wanted to experience joy, but I felt like I had to deny joy, my own joy and happiness in order to obey God. Do you know that that isn't true? <clears throat> that our joy and God's glory are actually united. That we have been created by God to be truly happy and to find real joy. <clears throat> but not to find that outside of God, to find that joy in God. And the joy that Christ offers to us is the only real joy, lasting joy, and eternal joy that any of God's created beings can experience. We see this in our passage this morning in Luke chapter 10. So if you have a Bible, open with me to Luke chapter 10. Luke is in the New Testament. It's one of the four of the first books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. These are the Gospels. These are testimonies about the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, his ministry on earth 2,000 years ago. And Luke, the third Gospel, is the New Testament book that we've been studying for some months. As you open up your Bibles to Luke, we're in Luke chapter 10. And last Sunday, we saw Christ, the eternal king, sending ambassadors to proclaim this message of the kingdom. Jesus, the king, has arrived on earth. God become man. And he has begun displaying who he is as God's Messiah, God's eternal king, the promised Messiah who would come and reign. And as we saw in chapter 9, Jesus has set his face to go to Jerusalem, where he would die on a cross as a sacrifice for his people. And on this long journey from Galilee to Jerusalem, Jesus plans to visit towns and villages along the way. And to prepare the way for his visitation, Jesus is commissioning more and more of his disciples to represent him to this nation in need of this Savior. So Jesus commissions another group of disciples to represent him, a group of 72 others, it says in chapter 10 and verse 1. And then he appointed them. He sent them ahead of him two by two into every town and place that he was about to go to visit. Now, this word to send means not merely to send, but to authorize a messenger with a message. And this is what Jesus has done. He's commissioned these representatives and these 72 are authorized ambassadors of Christ, like the 12 apostles already. And they're commissioned and sent ahead of him. 
as ambassadors of Christ's kingdom. Ambassadors of heaven come to earth. And as we saw last week, the message that they brought was the gospel message, a message of peace. Really quickly, this gospel of peace is the message of peace from God and peace with God. The reality of of the good news of the gospel is that we are all sinners. It begins with the bad news that we deserve God's wrath and judgment. The remarkable thing is that heaven, rather than bringing wrath when Jesus comes, while we deserve this, Jesus comes from heaven with peace. And this offer of peace is the offer of a reconciled relationship with God through Christ, the King, and through his sacrificial death on the cross. This is the gospel message that sinners like us, like you and me, who have rebelled against this good and loving creator king, that we too can have a reconciled relationship with God and not just have God be okay with us, but actually bring us into his family. Jesus on the cross takes the sin and the punishment that we deserve, we receive in return peace with God, a reconciled relationship with him, and we now are able to become a part of his family. This gospel message has been preached in its encapsulated early form of the king who has come in Jesus. And this morning, we will be looking at Luke 10, 17 to 20, as these ambassadors return, returning to their commissioning king. Jesus receives back his messengers with joy, and in their return, He teaches them about joy. He teaches them about their joy. So the overarching theme, Jesus desires his people to know true joy. But the greatest joy of the Christian is to know and be known by God. Jesus desires his people to know true joy. But the greatest joy of the Christian is to know and be known by God. And I pray that this morning, that we would know the love of our electing God and experience the joy that nothing in this world could take away. Let's begin by reading our passage this morning. Follow along with me as I read Luke 10, 17 to 20. This is God's word. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. As we saw last week, these 72 ordinary disciples have been authorized to be ambassadors of Christ, representing heaven and heaven's king to earth. And they're commissioned and sent ahead of Christ to declare the message of the kingdom, which is peace with God. We saw that the message is a kingdom message sent by the king and the message that the kingdom of God has come near in the person of Jesus. We saw, as we already talked about, that it's a ministry of peace. We saw that these messengers were sent to have a dependent ministry, depending on God to do his work through them. And we saw this in the picture of the harvest that he says he's sending them into, the command to pray as they go, the promise of provision to not take anything with them, knowing that God would provide for their needs, and the promise of authority. 
But not only was it a dependent ministry, it was a dangerous ministry. He says, I'm sending you out as wolves and uh, as lambs in the midst of wolves. And it is an urgent ministry. He says to greet no one on the way, but to, to hurry and go to the task. There's much to be done. But he also tells them at the end of his commissioning that this is as well, both a ministry of peace, but a ministry of judgment. Rejection is to be expected. And for those that reject the message, it isn't just the messenger being rejected, but Christ being rejected, God being rejected, and judgment would follow. Now, after a commissioning like this, with so many warnings and the difficulties of the work explained, how might you expect to see them return from such a battle, from such difficult work? I think we'd fully expect to see them return discouraged, dejected, limping back into camp with their war wounds, carrying the injured, lambs among wolves. And yet this isn't the scene at all. Look at verse 18, they're 17, they're rejoicing, they're thrilled with their ministry successes. And the ministry success outweighs all of the discouragements, the rejections and the setbacks. Brothers and sisters, I believe this is what you will find as you trust God and step out in a faithful Christian life and Christian ministry. It may be costly. It may be difficult. But for the Christian, the joy of taking part in God's work, in Christ's work, is always worth it. Yes, there will be hurt and pain. Yes, there will be grief and loss. But the joys of serving the Lord far outweigh the costs incurred. I've had pastoral conversations with Christians weighing decisions like marriage. Should I get married? And considering the decision more like a spreadsheet with pros and cons than what you would expect in a consideration of a relationship or a covenant like marriage. People performing a cost-benefit ana analysis on the prospect of marriage. Well, it will cost me in these ways if I get married, but it will benefit me in these ways if I get married. And I have to tell people the calculations don't work that way. They don't work that way. The numbers cannot accurately reflect the love that you will have for your spouse and the joy that such a relationship will give you, will bring in a Christian covenant marriage. Friend, you know the same thing is true in the path that Jesus calls us to. Yes, we have to take up our cross to follow Jesus. It will be costly to follow Christ, but to know Christ and to be a part of his kingdom is priceless. You cannot put a price tag on it or fit that into a formula on Excel. If you're hearing this and you're not a Christian, perhaps you are weighing the value of following Christ and considering the pleasures of sin and the pleasures of this world. Let me tell you, the joy that is found in Christ is immeasurable. And to be a part of his kingdom, a member of his kingdom is priceless. Look at the source of the disciples' joy in verse 17. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Do you notice Jesus doesn't disagree with them? In fact, he goes on in the verses that follow to tell them that the reality is even greater than they know. Look at verse 18. And he said to them, 
I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Disciples are excited. Their ministry is successful. Demons are being cast out in the name of Christ. They're excited at the things that are happening through them. And Jesus says the reality is greater than they know. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. There's a passage in the Old Testament in 2 Kings where the king of Syria sends a great army with horses and chariots to seize the prophet Elisha because Elisha is telling the king of Israel everything that's happening in Syria because God's revealing it to him. Elisha's servant rises early in the morning to find an army with horses and chariots surrounding the city. And the servant is afraid. But Elisha tells him, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those that are with them. This is 2 Kings 6 and verse 17. And Elisha does this. Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So here's a servant, a human being, looking out and seeing the army of the king of Syria surrounding his city. And Elisha telling him, those that are with us are greater than those that are with them. And Elisha says, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. In that passage, 2 Kings 6, the spiritual reality behind the scenes is able to be seen by the prophet's servant. There are fiery angels protecting God's people, and there is no need to be afraid. And for a moment, God pierces the veil so that the spiritual realities can be clearly seen. And this is what Jesus does here with his disciples. The 72 ambassadors have been faithful in preaching the good news of the kingdom of heaven come to men. And as they've gone about their very ordinary ministry, something extraordinary has been happening in the spiritual realm. Satan falling like lightning from heaven. Satan's kingdom being shaken dealt a death blow as Jesus' eternal kingdom is being established on earth with his people. While individual demons are being cast out, the prince of demons and the whole demonic establishment is being cracked at the foundations. The reality is greater than they know. And Jesus pierces the veil for them. He gives them a glimpse, a vision into the spiritual realities happening behind the scenes that they have been an active and important part of. Christian, always remember that there's more going on behind the scenes in the spiritual realm than you can see with your own two eyes. There is more that God is doing in your ordinary faithfulness than you will ever know this side of heaven. But as we are faithful with very ordinary things, things like ordinary awkward evangelism, ordinary prayers in our private place, ordinary sacrificial service to our families and to our churches. God is doing through these ordinary things, extraordinary things, eternal things. Trust him and know that on the last day, your faithful efforts will have been shown to accomplish so much more than you imagined. 
Well, the reality is greater than the disciples know. Not only are they being used to deal a death blow to Satan's kingdom, they're also given a prime place in the king's army. Look at verse 19. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Christ's commissioned ambassadors have been given a prime place in the king's army. In Deuteronomy 8.15, Moses reminds the nation of Israel how God had protected them in their travels through the wilderness, a wilderness full of snakes and scorpions, it says. And God's new covenant people as well are afforded both great authority and great protection. They're given great authority to proclaim the gospel and to declare the king's authority over every enemy and rebel, physical enemies and spiritual enemies. This language of treading on serpents and scorpions appears to be a metaphor for the trampling of evil spirits. Perhaps a picture of Genesis 3, 15, the promise that there would come one, the seed of the woman who would trample the head of the serpent. In Romans 16, 20, the apostle Paul tells the Roman Christians there, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Paul also in 1 Corinthians 6 tells the Corinthian Christians, do you not know that you will judge angels? As members of Christ's kingdom, we are afforded the authority of Christ in our spiritual battles, but we're also provided the protection of Christ. Look at the end of verse 19. Nothing shall hurt you. Nothing shall hurt you. Now, Jesus doesn't mean that his people will not experience pain and hurt, even perhaps death or martyrdom in his name. We will all suffer in some way. But for him to promise that nothing shall hurt you is a reminder that no ultimate hurt will come upon God's people. Later in Luke chapter 20, verses 12 to 19, Jesus tells his disciples this. He tells them this is going to happen to them. They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Terrible suffering, grief, and pain. Verse 18, but not a hair of your head will perish. But by your endurance, you will gain your lives. You may die for me, Jesus says, but not a hair of your head will perish. Not a hair of your head will perish. What does Jesus mean by this? No ultimate hurt can come to you because you are God's own and you will be his forever. We are those people, as the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6, who are sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. And this is what Jesus is saying to these, his disciples. No true harm will come to you. You have the protection of the God of the universe. While Jesus encourages these disciples as they return with joy, 
do you see he does something interesting here? He, while has given them a broader view of the spiritual realities behind their ministry activity, he also wants to give them a broader view of the realities of their joy. You see, as they return with joy, they're excited at the ministry successes that they've been a part of. The demons obey us and are subject to us, submissive to us in your name, Jesus. And do you notice that Jesus encourages them by reminding them that the truth is greater than they realize? Do you notice, too, that he wants them to have joy and to be happy? He tells them to rejoice. But he knows that there is a correction that needs to happen here for them to have true and lasting joy, joy their whole life through. Their joy must be rooted in the right thing. And the thing that their joy needs to be rooted in is not their ministry successes or even their spiritual authority, not their gifting or their great exploits. Jesus says, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Verse 20, don't rejoice in this. Your ministry successes, your gifting, your authority, your exploits, but rather find your joy in this, that your names are written in heaven. We too often tend to find our joy in lesser things, even lesser gifts from God, good gifts that he's given to us. We put too much of our joy and our happiness in these gifts, or we tend to find our identity and things about ourselves, even our gifts and abilities, our accomplishments or successes. Jesus, out of love for these disciples and a desire for their even greater joy, corrects them. And he wants them to see this. The greatest joy of the Christian is to know and to be known by God. I'll say that again. The greatest joy of the Christian is to know and to be known by God. To be secure in his everlasting arms. As the, the catechism says, what is our greatest hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but belong body and soul to God. You see what Jesus is saying here, the much deeper and greater reality that we should be delighting in is not the things that we can do for God, but the fact that we are known by God, that God knows us, that we are known by him. And not just known about or acknowledged. You can think of the difference between an acquaintance and a friend or the difference between an acquaintance here. And a beloved child, it says that God has written our name in his book. Not as a roster of attendants full of typos, but as a beloved father or mother. In Isaiah 49, God says this to his people. Can a woman forget her nursing child? that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb. Even these, that is, even nursing mothers, may forget. They may forget their child. Yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. 
Uh, when I was growing up, we had a family Bible. It sat in our living room on the, the, the coffee table, the, the end table in between my mom's chair and my dad's chair. It was one of these old family Bibles that was given as a gift, I believe, at my parents' marriage. And in the front of it, as many old Bibles had, was a family tree and a place for you to write your family tree. And in that book, I remember opening it as a child, I remember finding my name written in the family Bible. It was there on the family tree. And what was written there was my mom's name and my dad's name and the date of their marriage. And then I saw my older brother's name and his birthday and then my name and my birthday. And I remember seeing this written with care, written with love, written with different pens because these births had happened over a period of years, but finding my name written in the family Bible was a beautiful thing. And knowing that it had been written with love because there was significance here. This was my mom or my dad writing down the names of their children, their own beloved ones as they write out their family tree. You see that this is what God has done. Our loving and electing God has written down the names of his beloved children before time began, before he created anything. The Bible teaches us that he had chosen those that would be his own and had written their names in his book. Or as Isaiah 49 puts it, graven them on his hands. Brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian, you aren't a person that is simply known about by God. No, you are beloved by God, known by him, chosen by him. And your name has been lovingly written in his book. And your security is sure. And your eternal presence with God is secure. There is a great temptation for us as Christians to find our joy, to find our delight in the gifts that God gives to us. What Jesus does in this loving correction in Luke 10, verse 20, is point his disciples toward a joy, a source of joy that will last them all their lives through and through eternity, the joy of their relationship with God. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you to find your joy, not in anything else that this world offers, but in knowing and being known by your God. Let me encourage you to draw near to him, to delight in him, to spend time with him, enjoying hearing from him in his word and spending time with him in prayer. And let me encourage you to take part in God's joy, as we'll see the next time we look in Luke, of not only knowing God, but making him known to those around you. We have the opportunity to know true and lasting joy. Let's Delight in our God and delight as these messengers in making him known. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you that you desire your people to have joy, to be truly happy as you have intended, but to find our joy not in anything else, but ultimately in you. We pray that we would be a people of joy, of an unshakable joy, and that even as we sorrow, that our joy would be secure 
because it's rooted in you, in Christ, and in your love for us. We pray that we would be a people full of joy that can be a witness to those around us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.